Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined by my co-host Andre Ganoella. And Andre, there is a lot that has happened uh, in the world in the past week. Uh, I think we should start with Afghanistan. So what's the breakdown there? So basically, uh, I mean, you know, the fears about Afghanistan still abound. Uh, you know, all the critiques we heard from Ambassador Newman, from General Petraeus and his varying interviews and so on, they still exist. Uh, people are still fairly concerned that the Taliban will take over the country. But something we pointed out here on What in the World and something that General Petraeus, Ambassador Newman, and loads of others who have worked on the issue have expressed real concern about is what is going to be the fate of those who help the United States, uh, the interpreters, the drivers, uh, other folks who were Afghanis who helped U.S. forces in that invasion and throughout the war against the Taliban, because there have been many, you know, just terrible uh, terrible instances of these people, uh, you know, being attacked by the Taliban, being attacked by other terror groups, losing family members, losing friends be because of their association with the United States. Uh, so basically what's been happening is that there is a lot of uh, there was a lot of push to ensure that President Biden uh, takes care of these folks that, you know, they come to the United States, perhaps they they are given uh, an efficient way to migrate. I mean, there was this great, I believe, a John Oliver clip that sort of looked into this issue very in-depthly, we'll link it in the bio, that looked at one case of one interpreter. He had been waiting five years to get his visa to enter the country. In that time, I believe his family members had been killed or kidnapped by the Taliban. Uh, so I think the president and his administration took note of all of those critiques. And on Thursday, they announced that they would be relocating thousands of these Afghanis who helped U.S. forces. Uh, they will be, I believe, relocating them to outside the country uh, to ensure that they are safe, safely held while they actually work on getting an entry into the United States. Uh, President Biden said, quote, those who helped us are not going to be left behind. And certainly, I mean, that's what many of us have been clamoring for. Uh, Ryan, what are your thoughts? I think this is a very good decision. I, I personally believe that these folks should be given an automatic green card for putting uh, their life on the line in helping the United States in its invasion and that, you know, we should not be abandoning them to the dust. I think they should be allowed, you know, entry into this country because they helped us. They helped us at the end of the day and we can't abandon our allies. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And you and I have talked about this on previous What in the Worlds. We've talked about it uh, in our other episodes with, you know, Ambassador Newman and uh, General David Petraeus. Um, but I want to just kind of dig into this a bit more. And so there's a special immigrant, immigrant visa category that is going to process many of these interpreters. They're going to be moved to this third country. This is likely to happen in August. And then from there, uh, many of them will likely be able to come to the United States. Uh, and again, this is a crucial step to basically assist those who assisted us. Uh, it's, it's a bipartisan effort. You see members on both sides of the aisle. While you know, there was this bipartisan effort to withdraw from Afghanistan, which we are doing, uh, seeing this, seeing that the United States is going to help those who helped us, really is a, a step in the right direction, and it embraces the very values that President Biden has been espousing since the campaign trail. Um, and just you know, going on to, to this withdrawal, um, it was announced that the United States will still maintain about 650 military personnel in country in Afghanistan in order to act as security for the U.S. Embassy uh, and the, the major airport there. Um, of course, operating in Afghanistan is going to become increasingly dangerous 
for U.S. personnel and for regular Afghanis as, as the U.S. withdraws and the Taliban begin to take more and more land. Uh, I believe it was reported that in the past two months, they've doubled um, their holdings, which is a very scary um, statistic to think about that the Taliban could very well in the next six months, and this is in line with the U.S. intelligence community report, could, you know, retake the country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sort of expecting this, I mean, sadly to happen. The Taliban, I think, will retake a good portion of the country or else the country is going to be plunged into civil war. Uh, I know President Biden is going to be soon meeting with the Afghan president, uh, Ashraf Ghani, I believe maybe today, actually, uh, to talk about, I mean, the worsening security situation, uh, especially since, like, I mean, we've seen these offensives start occurring with more intensity since the U.S. announced it will withdraw its military uh, unconditionally uh, from Afghanistan. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what actually happens in that meeting. Uh, as Ryan, you said, 650 troops will remain to protect all our diplomatic outposts and so on. But uh, I really wonder to be honest, what type of help, what type of assistance the U.S. will be providing to Afghanistan that they believe will perhaps change the fortunes of those on the ground right now. Yeah, and another wrinkle to this, the story is the, the status of Turkey. Turkey is you know, sending in quote-unquote peacekeeping forces uh, to kind of oversee um, you know, U.S. withdrawal and also to maintain a sense of security over the airport there. But, you know, Turkey is not an honest broker of of really anything. And so just by having the Turks there, I mean, it doesn't, you know, give any hope in, to my mind. Um, and it might just kind of, you know, further bolster, you know, the, the Turkish, you know, their own kind of sense of special interest within Afghanistan. Um, and so, uh, as we've again, as we've talked about, right, the, the U.S. should be ending these endless wars, but the ways in which we do them have implications. And so, you know, for me, I, I just can't, you know, not think about the implications for um, Afghani women and Afghani children and, you know, schools and the, just the really the implications for inevitably when the Taliban retake power and have a more conservative and strict kind of interpretation of, of, the, of Sharia. And so that's going to, again, radically change uh, Afghanistan society and largely for the detriment of many who have helped the United States and and, and many others alike. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I now want to move on into a topic that's very much closer to home, actually just to our neighbors up north in Canada. Uh, they are finding hundreds of these bodies of Indigenous children uh, at basically what were these residential schools that were, I think, operated, Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, operated by the Catholic Church uh, in Canada between, I think, 1883 uh, through 1996, around 150,000 um, Indigenous children uh, participated in these schools, which were primarily aimed at assimilation. But uh, in recent weeks and months, they've been finding just these hundreds of un bodies in these unmarked grave sites. I think an initial discovery was made of about 250. Uh, on Thursday, they discovered about 750 bodies at one school. And uh, there have been many just disgusting reports of uh, many of the students who had been through these schools discussing the wide gamut of abuse uh, and just just terrible, terrible. I mean, frankly, human rights violations, in my view, just 
horrific. And I mean, certainly the U.S. also had some, you know, I think schools that participated in assimilation. Ryan, uh, maybe you can elaborate a bit on, you know, what we're sort of observing in Canada right now. And yeah. Yeah, just to go on to your point about the, the role of the Catholic Church. So 70% of these schools were run um, by the Catholic Church, and the, they've already come out and have apologized for it. Um, but the, the rest were run by, by Protestant churches. And so this is a very kind of deeply disturbing, but also very important kind of reckoning with the rights of indigenous people in, in Canada. So just, you know, like for our American listeners, um, you know, where in the United States, we, we did send indigenous um, children to schools where they were basically, you know, the U.S. engaged in this cultural genocide where they stripped them of their, you know, indigenous clothing, their language, their culture, and tried to, quote unquote, Americanize them. The same was done in Canada. Um, and so this um, is, is finally coming to a head where you see, you know, these mass graves, right? And there's no real understanding of how these children died. Um, but the, these, these children were subjected to, to abuse, um, to, again, this idea of cultural genocide. Uh, and so the Canadian government is, is trying to you know, wrangle with this. They have been deeply criticized for their handling of it because it's really been a mess. And you know, things like this about the, the relations between the Canadian government um, and the indigenous populations have been rocky for, for you know, decades, really since the, the, the founding of Canada. Um, but uh, this you know, hopefully will be a step in the right direction where they will be setting up uh, you know, some sort of compensation structure, some commission to investigate this further, um, to kind of, you know, give some sort of closure to the communities that have experienced this. Yeah, there is this Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was set up by the Canadian government. They said around 4,100 students died uh, while attending these schools. But Murray Sinclair, uh, who was a former senator who actually led this uh, TRC, he did say that they believe that the actual number of uh, missing kids could be over 10,000. And uh, I think the U.S. itself is also, I think, un undertaking some investigations into schools in America uh, that also participated in this. But I mean, good Lord, this is just a, I mean, I, I want to know how these children died. I mean, that's one of my big questions. Like, was it disease? Was it, God forbid, murder? Uh, what type of, you know, neglect, mistreatment existed? Because I think that's, you know, the biggest question I have personally when I hear about an unmarked gravesite of hundreds of bodies. Yeah, I mean, you, you hear about, you know, this type of situation occurring in, in conflict, not, you know, when you're running schools for minority populations and those that are severely repressed. Um, but I, I want to take a step back and look to kind of a larger picture thing. Um, you know, Canada recently led this multilateral uh, statement in front of the U United Nations Human Rights Council that criticized China's treatment of the Uyghur minority uh, population in Xinjiang province. We've talked about the Uyghurs a bunch. Um, they are this uh, predominantly Muslim minority uh, in, in China that have been repressed by the Chinese state. Um, and uh, as as terrible as this is, this really does present an opportunity for for adversaries, for autocracies, to point to the Western world and say, "Look what they do." Right? I mean, it, the the United States and Canada and all these Western countries are always attempting to you know take higher ground by um, by promoting these Western democratic values that promote human rights and freedom for all and diversity and and celebrating the cultures of everyone. But when something like this is unearthed, it really just picks away at the legitimacy 
of countries like Canada to, to do uh, the work like this of holding other countries accountable. And so I just think that's a, a necessary wrinkle to this story. Absolutely. I mean, we just recorded the session for Fiona Hill, uh, the famous Russian expert, uh, will be releasing it on Monday, but she sort of talked a bit about uh, the Biden-Putin summit and recounted a bit of uh, Vladimir Putin's press conference where he was really engaging in a lot of whataboutism about, you know, certain reporters will be asking him about, you know, cracking down on protests or cracking on this, that and whatnot. And Putin will always turn the question around and, you know, be like, what about the United States? And I mean, you know, I mean, I love the United States. It's the greatest country on earth. I'm proud to be an American. But there are certainly many sins that have occurred in the United States. We are still seeing them today. We have seen them to great lengths in history. Uh, I remember reading a bit about Ronald Reagan's meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev. And Gorbachev, when Reagan brought up, you know, the human rights issues regarding Jewish people in the Soviet Union in the 1980s, Gorbachev said, well, what about the African-Americans in the United States? What about segregation? That was not too long ago. So when you're seeing, I mean, just these dreadful discoveries and the lack of, I guess, addressal or, you know, I mean, Canada is now trying to address this, but in other situations, you know, a lack of addressal of certain national sins, perhaps, uh, that can really, I mean, obviously, draw draw back on the amount of credibility we have in the West, in the United States, in Canada, wherever, to call out China, to call out Russia on their own human rights abuses if we cannot, you know, rectify with our own. So, I mean, uh, I, I think this story really highlights that. Uh, it's a dreadful story. Uh, certainly do more digging. I'm going to do more digging into this, but yeah. Without a doubt. And Andre, because you mentioned Russia, now I have to bring up a Russia story from this past week. Um, so what we have is the, the British destroyer, uh, HMS Defender, sailing off the coast of Crimea, uh, which is, uh, of course, a disputed territory. It was annexed by, by Russia after they invaded it in 2014. It's claimed by Ukraine as being a sovereign Ukrainian territory. And so we have this British destroyer you know, demonstrating that this water belongs to Ukraine. Um, and, and Russia, however, you know, says that it's part of their territorial waters. They said this is a, a, a quote, intolerable provocation. And so what we have is, you know, Russia saying that they're, they're not going to allow it. They have, you know, sent warning shots. They've dropped bombs in front of the course of the destroyer. Um, you know, you're, you're basically having, you know, the British trying to maneuver out of a, a conflict with Russia. And so this is the first time since the Cold War that, uh, that Russia has acknowledged the use of live ammo to deter a NATO warship. And, and so this is just really just underlines the tension between Russia uh, and NATO powers. And this is right after the, the summit between President Biden and Putin, where they were talking about, you know, constructive relationship. They were, you know, complimenting one another. And so this is, this is quite an interesting development in U.S. relations with Russia and also European relations with Russia. Yeah, I mean, I think the Russians send about 20, like, I think, fighter jets, like, you know, to sort of uh, go past the, war the the British warship. I mean, obviously, the warship was trying to be more assertive and, you know, saying this is Ukrainian uh, waters, which Russia obviously does not like, given its 2014 annexation of uh, Crimea. But, uh, you know, uh, Boris Johnson said Britain does not recognize that annexation. Britain does not recognize that Crimea is Russia's. So uh, that's going to be, I mean, that was quite an interesting tale. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, it, there, it doesn't seem like this is going to escalate further, but it just shows how, 
how tense the situation is, particularly over Crimea, uh, because you know the the Western countries have always touted that Crimea is Ukraine. Russia, of course, has said Crimea is Russia, and so this is a, a particular pain point and one in which that allowed uh, Vladimir Putin in 2014 to kind of see this huge rise, this moment, this giant momentum of support within the Russian population for this annexation. And so anything to kind of undermine this is, you know, is taken as a slap in the face to the Kremlin. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, quite interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, with regards to that Biden-Putin summit meeting, I mean, we talked a bit about it, I think, last week, uh, the week before as well. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say relations are so rosy with the United States, by the way, So, or and with Russia. So... Absolutely not. And I think another interesting kind of, you know, corollary to this is that France and Germany, uh, who are members of the EU, have called for an EU summit with Vladimir Putin. um, But many other EU countries have said absolutely not, that Russia doesn't deserve uh, a meeting with with the European Union. And so, um, again, each country has a very delicate relationship with Russia. You know, we have this the spat with with Britain. We have this recent meeting with the United States, and so the the European Union, of course, has many crucial countries that are you know sitting along Russia on their you know their easternmost border. And so, um, if the EU does not you know move to positive relations with Russia, it's going to have a significant impact on its economy. Um, and so, I, I think that's enough of of Russia for now, Andre. I want to you know next move on to this Delta Plus variant. Um, where there are, you know, known cases around the world. And and what we see is, you know, the, the spreading of, from the United States to the UK, to India, to Australia, um, it's got a lot of media attention. Um, and so what, what what's happening is that this is a an easy, more easily transmittable strain. And it's also deadly. And so for those who are not, you know, vaccinated, this, uh, this is, you know, quite terrible. It's a very interesting mutation. Um, and so... Uh, really, you know, as the world is trying to reckon with COVID-19, as we've seen this, these max vaccination campaigns, we've seen these mass mandates, the world is seemingly on its way to some sort of normalcy. Um, COVID comes back and it's kicking us again. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what, what the, the good news is that these vaccines we have, especially the Pfizer vaccine and so on, especially in the United States, uh, do seem to be effective against the Delta variant, but uh, the Delta plus variant is different from the delta variant uh delta plus has an has one more additional i believe a mutation which makes it different from the regular one uh and like it's it's not like a it's not a totally new virus uh i mean this was they found i think a bit of it in qatar in uh, march of 2020 but i mean the the fact that this virus continues to mutate that we are seeing these variants delta beta or originating in you know certain countries in india in the uk in brazil and so on uh, i mean it obviously goes to show you that the necessity for vaccine diplomacy right the necessity to proliferate more vaccines to send more vaccines to other countries not just the united states all the united states i would recommend everyone gets their vaccine i got mine i believe in february or march of pfizer i just went in and got it and I mean, yeah, we, we need to reach 70% in the United States and we need to make sure that we can get these vaccines to countries, especially, especially in the global South. I mean, look at India. It's so dense. There are so many slums, so many low-income areas. 
so many areas that are just not being counted, right? So when you have a virus like that, that's just proliferating through a population like that in those conditions, of course, it's going to spread like wildfire. Of course, it's going to mutate. And uh, I mean, President Biden said, you know, we are, I mean, I think with the quad, we're sending 2 billion to South and Southeast Asia with the G7, Ryan, was it a billion? I think a billion that's going to be sent to countries in the global south. And then the United States is going to send 500 million itself. So that's about, what, three and a half billion vaccines that's going to go out. But uh, again, you know, global health, uh, this vaccine diplomacy stuff is going to be really important if you want to kick this virus back down. Yeah, without a doubt. And so I think we'll we'll continue to see vaccine diplomacy in full force. Um even as you know, new strains emerge, um, it, it seems like you know that many countries are, are taking the correct steps. But as you mentioned, Andre, um, countries in the global south, particularly those who who lack the necessary infrastructure for distribution, um, are faced with these steep challenges as well as disinformation. Right? We're, we keep talking about the, the the consequences and the implications of, of fake news, and it's right not just when you're talking about politics, but also when you're talking about public health. And so, as Andre, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's very important. We're, we're all advocating for everyone to get vaccinated, but um, particularly in, in countries who are, you know, rife with, with disinformation about becoming vaccinated, uh, that creates another challenge as well. There's also, the, I think there's also a bigger challenge uh, because, I mean, when we're looking at this, we often look at it from, you know, we got to send out the vaccines. But a lot of these, you know, countries, especially in the global south, are going through significant economic downturns as a result of this virus or their governments are just completely like, you know, inept in terms of dealing with this. I mean, the example I love to point to is Sri Lanka because I have family there. I'm sort of observing it, what's happening there. And I mean, Sri Lanka, it's sort of locking down, it's reopening, it's locking down, it's reopening, there's a curfew. I mean, it's as if the virus does not spread at night or, or some somehow, right? So, I mean, I mean, not to make light of it, but sometimes you sort of see some of these governments and they don't have a clue about what they're doing. And I think there has to be some sort of multilateral diplomatic uh, sharing of best practices in dealing with the virus, uh, whether it's, and that doesn't just extend to vaccine dissemination, but actually how do you run a government? How do you organize? And how do you mobilize your resources to actually enact good public health, uh, you know, uh, safeguards and so on. And then also like, what is the aftermath of this gonna look like? What is the economic aid gonna look like to countries like Sri Lanka? Sri Lanka's currency is going down the toilet. There's unemployment abounds. There are many countries like that that have been hit hard by the virus. I mean, we've been hit hard by the virus in that ex to that extent, but I mean, for countries that actually will run out of money, what, what do you do about that, right? Because, I mean, there's a great opening for China, for Russia, and all these other big powers to sort of get in there and, you know, get power, grab power, grab influence, and so on. But I, I think it's something that I'm not hearing too much about that hopefully we should hear more about. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. It's something that really needs to be focused on. And just another kind of strand of, of the implications of COVID uh, is political instability. And so we, we actually talked about Thailand uh, you know, in the early days of this podcast, it's been a year since there were student-led protests in Thailand against this military-backed government. They've been calling for the prime minister to to go away. You know, there's you have the the COVID nineteen, which has really hit uh, Thailand hard. 
Their economy has been hit hard because of COVID and other you know, issues as well. Um, and so we, we again have protesters marching uh, in the Capitol um, in order to kind of overturn this government, uh, this, this coup um, that, that came to power first in 2014. And so uh, we actually have a, a very uh, you know, in-depth episode about this that you can go back and listen to. Um, but as you know, many of you may know, Thailand uh, has a very powerful king. And so the political fragmentation in Thailand um, you know, is, is very intricate. But I think the most in, important aspect of this is the youth movement. And we keep talking about this, Andre, is how anytime there are ripple effects, whether it's economic, health, you know, some sort of political, um, it, it does cause the youth to mobilize in many different situations. And this has been materialized uh, in, in Thailand. And so uh, this movement by, by the student-led movement is again, seeing a resurgence. And so again, you know, maybe some 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 dark days for the monarchy ahead, but maybe a brighter days for the, the actual population, the people of Thailand. Yeah, and if you want to learn more about the situation in Thailand, or at least the situation as of the fall of 2020, and the background certainly, our, our episode with Professor Alan Hicken from the University of Michigan, one of my old professors, uh, really focuses in on Thailand, the monarchy, and the anti-monarchy protests that had been occurring there uh, in the weeks before. So, uh, Ryan, we are also, we really haven't seen the end of the border crisis. I mean, perhaps it's been sort of less covered in the news, but I mean, I would say that there is still a border crisis. Uh, uh, President Biden did certainly name uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris as the point woman on the border crisis. Uh, it's certainly a thankless job, uh, but vice presidents, they got to deal with this stuff sometimes. and. I mean, her ability to deal with this, uh, if she deals with it effectively, will certainly raise her political profile and her political stature if she, you know, does decide to run for president, if President Biden does not run in 24, or if she runs in 28. Uh, but uh, her visits to Guatemala and uh, Mexico we're not getting the best reviews. And we sort of missed the boat on covering those visits because I think we were so focused on the president and the G7 and Putin and all of that. But Vice President Harris did visit those two countries. Uh, not the best reviews. Not the best reviews. What's been going on there? She's also going to visit the border. She's also going to visit the border, I think, today. Uh, I think Republicans were attacking her uh, for not visiting the border. And now they're attacking her for visiting the border. and. I mean, you know, you do, you don't, you're still a loser, but the, the visits, I want to focus on the visits for now. Right. I think the, the biggest takeaway, and it's quite unfortunate that this is kind of the soundbite from her trip to Guatemala was, quote unquote, do not come. Um, I mean, that, that is basically what the media ran with. Um, and she did say it. She said that, you know, while visiting Guatemala, that um, undocumented migrants hoping to come to the United States should not come to the United States. I mean, and, and her reasoning for this was that, you know, we, we have a process. If you come, it's a very dangerous journey. Um, you may very well die. You have, you know, these people that traffic individuals. Um, and so what she was trying to promote was legal migration, was ensuring that they can improve the situations within these countries so that migration uh, isn't necessary. Um, but it was, it really did end up being really just a, a terrible soundbite that made her seem, you know, that you saw comparisons drawn to what, former President Donald Trump said uh, about migration to the United States. And so um, I would say, while you know, she did have these meetings about you know, trying to promote economic development and political stability uh, in Central America, 
this was a, a, a lose uh, for, for Vice President Harris. Yeah, and I think she took a lot of flack for her, her quotes at these press conferences during these visits on why she was not visiting the border and so on. Uh, I mean, there was this great article on President Biden in the New York Times recently that sort of talked about sort of him running a meeting and he asked, you know, his staff members, like, have you actually been to the border? Have you actually been to these areas you're talking about? So, I mean, certainly there is value in visiting the border. Although, you know, sometimes people just visit this stuff for photo ops, which is not helpful whatsoever. But if it's a constructive visit, perhaps, or it contributes to her understanding of the issue or anyone's understanding the issue, then perhaps like, great, you know, that's great. But uh, it's... uh, I mean, she's visiting it now. We, we'll see what happens. But uh, I mean, I, I think the, the Mexican government, the Guatemalan government, were not so receptive to, I think, the U.S. positioning on the border uh, situation. Uh, I think uh, President Obrador of Mexico said that uh, said that uh, the United States, like, I mean, it, it was because of President Biden that, you know, these people are coming in and so on. Or like this, not that President Biden is telling them to come in. But the idea that President Biden's a nice man, that he will he will let you happily come in with your families and you will be able to stay. Uh, I, I think that's been a critique of by some of these Latin American countries, but also, I mean, are these Latin American countries guarding their side of the border as well? And I think President negotiated something along the lines of that. Mm-hmm. That 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 is the challenge of being receptive to migration. Um, is that it, it then opens up the possibility for all of these migrants who, you know, saw the rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration of, you know, you're not coming, you're not getting in, we're building a wall, um, we're going to send you back. Um, when you kind of reverse that, then it, it's not necessarily encouraging migration, but it, what it does is tell the migrants that the policy is going to change, it won't be as severe, you, you, know, you know, you may not be sent back, uh, you may be let in. Um, but but so we we do see you know these detention camps we we still um, you know see people being sent back I mean it, it happens right we have a system in place um, but I, I guess one of the the difficult aspects of this is that anytime you're dealing um, with with any other country right, the United States is basically saying um, you know Central American countries you have a problem and we're here to tell you how to fix it and that and that's never a great way to approach solving really difficult problems like this one. Um, and so it, it really starts with kind of understanding the issue, which, um, to her credit, Vice President um, Harris has attempted to do. Right? She spent a long time trying to understand the situation. She's made visits. She's met with um, all the, you know, the you know, civil society organizations, the humanitarian organizations, to try to figure out a solution. Um, but when when you have you know meetings like this where you have a soundbite of "Do not come," it kind of you know puts all that into the trash can. Um, and so. What, what I think you're going to see is that economic development and, and aid packages are the driving force behind this. Um, and that, you know, while, you know, that's a nice effort, it's not going to solve the solutions, right? You have crime, corruption, political instability, um, economic situations that are dire. And so you can't just, as we've said time and time again, you can't just throw money at a migration crisis. I mean, do you recall, I mean, you know, she, she doesn't really have any foreign policy experience, but she was a senator from California, my former senator. And again, California has the biggest border crossing in the world, Tijuana, San Diego, just about 15 miles south from where I am right now. 
I mean, as a U.S. senator who is representing the interests of California, she's going to have to deal with that. But also she was a U.S. senator for four years, four years. Right. And before that, she was attorney general. Uh, So, I mean, you know, this is her first visit, obviously, you know, entering the world of foreign policy at that high a level. You can have a little bit of a learning curve sometimes. And, you know, a lot of this is more so politics than actual policy right like the soundbite is politics a visit to the border it's politics it's the image it's the sound bites it's the looks it's all of that like sometimes people want to see you know a man or a woman in action they want to see vice president harris at the border god knows what she'll do at the border but she's at the border so something quote unquote appears to be happening it's sort of like you know when i mean like would like to recount the story uh uh, President Bush, uh, I mean, I think there's many solid critiques of President Bush's uh, handling of Hurricane Katrina. But one of the things he was afraid of was that when President Johnson, I believe, visited a hurricane ravaged region in the South during the 1960s, uh, Johnson came in and said, I am here to help you. And he came and he was visible. But that took all the resources away from the people who are trying to, you know, deal with the situation. And now they had to deal with the president who needs so much security and all this other logistics, who's basically just there to like, look like he's in charge uh, and so on. So, I mean, I mean, do you want a cheap photo op at the border or do you actually want uh, solid policy and solid information to come to you uh, from a visit to the border. A visit to the border can accomplish both things, but you should never do it for a photo op, as I've seen some representatives and legislators doing at times. Politics is a game. Policy is a whole another animal. And so, Andre, that's that's all the time we have today. Thank you, everyone, for listening uh, to this week's edition of What in the World. And as Andre mentioned, uh, we have a fabulous episode coming out on Monday with Fiona Hill. Be sure to stay tuned. Thank you all for listening. My name is Ryan Rosenthal. My name is Andre Gonawala. See you next week.